the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend producing, Dave King engineering. Today we'll hear a conversation with Charles Martin. They turned the world upside down. A storyteller's journey with those who dared to follow Jesus. That's coming up in our second hour today. We'll take a look at some of the uh, the weekend's headlines as well. Well, on Friday morning, Governor Tina Kotek signed a bill allowing Oregonians to pump their own gas. I remember the first time I nearly ran out of gas in the state of Washington, I was beside myself. I had no clue. In fact, I stood there at the pump waiting for someone to rush over and show me how to do it. Didn't happen. I had to figure it out on my own. Well, the bill came after a ban on self-service gas that lasted for 72 years here in the state of Oregon. Well, under the new bill, Oregonians will have the option to pump their own gas, while stations will also have employees there to pump gas as well. Now, the bill, which went into effect immediately after being signed, this is on Friday, allows gas stations across the state to give drivers the option to either pump their own gas or have an attendant do it. The new law also requires gas to cost the same amount no matter the service a person chooses and doesn't allow stations to have more self-service pumps than attendant service pumps. So we'll see how that works out in this um, in the early days of this transition. Well, I mentioned the first time I had to pump my own gas, and I've only done it maybe one or two other times. I wasn't quite sure what to do. Here are the instructions, ladies and gentlemen. Pull up to the pump with your fuel tank on the inside. Okay, I got that part right the first time. And while some gas stations do allow the nozzle to reach around the car, I'm finding fewer of them do. Pulling in on the right side of the car simplifies the whole process. Know which kind of gas you're getting. Make sure you're getting the right kind of gas for your car. And um, if you don't drive a diesel vehicle, make sure that you don't get diesel. Paying with a card simplifies the process. If you're paying with one, you can get things going straight away. You insert the card into the pump, putting the, you know, in your pin, selective gas type and all of that. Okay, get to pumping. Here's where it gets a little more tricky if you've never done it before. And you only uh, have never done it before the first time, and then you know how to do it from that point on. Uh, put the fuel nozzle into the vehicle. Make sure it's secure. Pull down on the trigger, you know, that thing. Uh, you have the option of either to hold it. Uh, the whole time, um, or most pumps have also have a, a locking mechanism that will sense when your car is full and uh, uh, fill it up for you. Make sure that the uh, reseal um, is is intact on your fuel uh, fuel tank. Whether your vehicle has a fuel cap or some sort of seal, ensure that the tank is properly closed. And if you want a receipt, the final thing you need to do is to in pumping your own gas and want a receipt. It's very straightforward. Say yes. Ladies and gentlemen, there you have the overturn of 72 years of history in the state of Oregon. And I can pretty much guarantee you, I will pull up to the gas station on the correct side. I will get out of the vehicle. I will go over to the pump and I'll stare at it like I've never seen English before. And I'll still fumble my way through it, at least for the first dozen or two dozen or three dozen times. Okay, I'm going to have it pumped for me. There, I've said it. 
Well, Oregon paychecks appear to be getting a boost this summer with tax withholdings up around 5% last month compared to July of 2022. Taxes withheld from paychecks are a rough uh, proximity of overall wage growth at employment levels. Withholdings fell sharply early in the pandemic and then soared as Oregonians went back to work. You probably noticed. More recently, wage growth appeared to cool off considerably last winter. Withholdings were up less than 2% annually in February, according to data from the Department of Revenue here in the state of Oregon. Well, that appeared to indicate that Oregon's labor market was finally loosening up and employers felt less need to raise wages to attract and retain workers. Uh, Notes uh, the state economist Josh Lerner um, in a recent analysis. Well, the slowdown in withholding coincided with a decline in job vacancies. The Oregon Employment Department says that the state had 69,000 job vacancies last spring. That's according to the Employment Department, down from 100,000 in 2021 and 22. Well, the cooler withholding numbers also coincide with layoffs and pay cuts at Intel, Oregon's largest corporate employer. The slowdown didn't last, though. Lerner um, reports that tax withholdings have picked up this summer. Personal income tax rates did, uh, didn't did rise, let's get that right, didn't, but with unemployment falling and paychecks growing, uh, the amount of taxes collected went up. Higher wages are generally pretty good news, but if the labor market's tightening again, that might not be so good. The difference between a cooling economy and a reaccelerating one matters quite a bit, he says. Um, this is writing, by the way. Rising wages and a tight labor market could reignite inflation, the bane of consumers over the past two years. And that might, in turn, prompt the Federal Reserve to implement fresh interest rate hikes, another bane of our existence, risking higher unemployment rates and renewing the prospect of a recession. So there you have it from the ground. Well, the Pac-12 dubbed itself the Conference of Champions for a history of athletic excellence stretching back more than 100 years. The largest conference out west was dominated by Olympic sports, went on an unprecedented run in men's college basketball and has won more national championships than any other league. Pac-12 alumni included some of the greatest names in sports history. Jackie Robinson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Tiger Woods, Jackie Joyner-Kersey. To think, even remotely five years ago, the Pac-12 would be in this position. It's unthinkable to think that we're here today. That's a quote from the... uh, a football coach from Washington State University, Jack Dickert. College sports has gone through monumental shifts in recent years. Schools swapped conferences like trading cards. Well, the demise of the Pac-12 hit like a supernova, a Power Five conference dying in real time. Southern California and UCLA, they kickstarted the contraction last year. They announced plans to join the Big Ten. Colorado stirred the winds of change further last week by voting to leave the Big 12. The Buffaloes uh, bolting hastened decisions across the conference, leading to a Friday flurry of five schools defecting within hours of each other. Oregon, Washington to the Big Ten, Arizona, Arizona State and Utah to the Big 12. I remember it was just the Pac-10, then the Pac-12. And now what is it? The Pac-4? How many are, are left? Left in the wake are the uh, lame ducks of 2023-24 season and the Pac-12 uh, that's down to a Pac-4 quite literally, on of California, Stanford, Oregon State, and Washington State. Says Washington State President Kirk Schulz and Athletic Director Pat Chun 
Uh, In a joint statement, we are disappointed with the recent decisions by some of our PAC-12 peers. Uh, We had hoped that our membership would remain together. This outcome was always a possibility, end quote. Justin Wilcox, the seventh year coach of Cal and an Oregon graduate, called it shocking. This is a big deal as it gets to be as big as it gets. I grew up around the Pac-10, the Pac-12 conference and watching it and uh, fortunate to be a part of it, coached in it for a long time. It's really sad. From what I know, it probably didn't need to come to this, but things happen along the way. Really unfortunate, frustrating. There's some anger there. Well, the defections were driven by football. More importantly, the money football generates. So there you have it. The Big Ten has a seven-year, $7 billion media rights deal with multiple networks. The Big 12 geared a $2 billion deal with Fox and ESPN last year. Uh, the Pac-4, well, not so much. We're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're working our way through some of the headlines of the last several days, and later they turned the world upside down, a storyteller's journey with those who dared to follow Jesus. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, the 2023 Pastor Appreciation Breakfast is set for Friday, October 6th at the Doubletree by Hilton downtown. This year's keynote speaker is musician Darren Mulligan of the band We Are Messengers. He's going to share his story, talk about his music ministry, and share a message that is sure to inspire. Morning worship will be led by Ben Fuller. October is Pastor Appreciation Month, and we want to honor all pastors, ministry leaders, and their spouses, plus other key staff members who serve with a delicious breakfast, Fellowship, worship, and keynote speaker Darren Mulligan. It's free to attend. Even parking is free, but space is limited and will fill up fast. So register online today at kpdq.com, the Pastor Appreciation Breakfast. Former Minnesota police officer Tao Thao, who's been sentenced to four and uh, years and nine months in prison for his uh, role in restraining bystanders, while his former colleague Derek Chauvin fatally restrained George Floyd. Thao is the last of the police officers involved in Floyd's 2020 death to be sentenced. In May, he was convicted of aiding and abetting second-degree manslaughter. The sentence handed down uh, by the uh, judge there on Monday was uh, longer than the sentence of four years that was recommended under state guidelines. Chauvin knelt on uh, Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes in May of 2020. Even after Floyd lost consciousness, Chauvin was convicted of second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. Thao testified that his role in the incident amounted to serving only as a human traffic cone to keep bystanders away as Chauvin knelt on Floyd's neck while the man repeatedly said he couldn't breathe. Judge Cahill voiced frustration with the officer, the former officer, who spoke at his hearing about his growth as a Christian during his time in prison and denied any role in Floyd's death. I did not commit these crimes, he said. My conscience is clear. I will not be a Judas nor join a mob in self-preservation or betray my God, end quote. I was hoping for a little more remorse, regret, acknowledgement of some responsibility and less preaching, Cahill, the judge, told Thou during the hearing. Cahill found, uh, uh, wrote in his um, 177-page ruling on, um, in May, rather, that Thou's actions separated Chauvin and two other officers, Former officers from uh, the crowd, including an emergency medical technician, the judge said this allowed the officer to continue restraining Floyd and preventing bystanders from rendering medical aid. 
Hunter Biden's former friend and longtime business partner visited the Obama White House and then Vice President Joe Biden's residence dozens of times between 2009 and 2016, likely to make him the next target of the House Oversight Committee's investigation into Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings. No, we're not talking about the um, the former friend that was um, recently came before a House committee or committees. Um, that, as previously reported, Eric Schwerin had visited the White House and vice presidential residence at Observatory Circle at least 27 times during Joe Biden's vice presidency. However, a more extensive review found that Schwerin actually made at least 36 visits during that same time frame. Schwerin was the founding partner and managing director of Hunter Biden's now dissolved firm, Rosemont Seneca Partners, when he was appointed by then President Obama to the Commission for the Preservation of America's Heritage Abroad, an independent U.S. government agency in early 2015. He was reappointed by President Obama to the commission in January of 2017. Eric asked for one of these uh, one of these uh, the day after the election in 2008. Hunter Biden revealed about Schwerin's initial appointment in an email in uh, 2015. The number of his White House visits could be much higher than 36 if any of his meetings fell under the White House voluntary disclosure policy exception of purely personal guests due to his handling of the Biden family personal finances. The White House will not release access records related to purely personal guests of the first, second family and visits that do not involve any official or political business, the Obama administration archive uh, website says. So he's very likely to be the next target. Whether or not he yields anything of significance remains at this point to be seen. Well, the federal judge overseeing the classified documents case against former President Donald Trump delivered multiple blows to special counsel Jack Smith's efforts in a brief on Monday. Judge Aileen Cannon of the Southern District of Florida, who's presiding over the case that stems from a Miami ground uh, grand jury, rather. Their June indictment of Trump denied the Department of Justice requests for sealed filings, striking two from the record. Cannon also requested additional information from prosecutors about the continued use of an out-of-state grand jury to investigate the case. The special counsel states in conclusory uh, terms that the supplement should be sealed from a pub- from public view to comport with grand jury secrecy, but the motion for leave and the supplemental uh, supplement rather plainly failed to satisfy the burden of establishing a significant legal or factual basis to warrant sealing the motion and supplement. The judge wrote in the brief denying the Department of Justice request. The filing came in response to the special counsel's request for a hearing to examine defense attorney Stanley Woodward's uh, potential conflicts of interest. Woodward, who represents Swaltine Nada, a Trump aide test, uh, listed as a co-defendant in the case, also represents three individuals who may also be called to testify in the case. Judge Cannon gave counsel for Nada until August the 17th to file a response to the motion for a hearing. She gave prosecutors until the 22nd to file a brief in support of the hearing. The latest action in the case comes about nine months before the scheduled trial. Cannon previously set the case to go on trial May the 20th of next year amid the Republican presidential primaries. The former president is facing 37 counts, including willful retention of national defense information, conspiracy to obstruct justice and making false statements. He pled not guilty to the charges. Nada, who is charged with six counts that include conspiracy to obstruct justice, also pled not guilty. A third defendant, Carlos de Oliveira, a a a property manager at Trump's residence at Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach, Florida, is accused by the special counsel of working with Trump to hide security footage. 
Over the past three months, the number of reporters with access to the White House dropped from by rather 31 percent. There are now 442 fewer reporters with a coveted hard pass, the result of new rules announced in May that took effect on Tuesday last week. The Daily Signal's Fred Lucas was among the reporters slated to lose his White House press credentials, although he was given a 10-day extension to submit the required materials. The White House now requires reporters to obtain press credentials from Congress or the Supreme Court to fulfill its new requirements. Lucas is currently awaiting a decision on his applications to the other branches. Politico's West Wing playbook first reported the numbers on Wednesday, along with the news that Simon Ateba, the White House correspondent for Today's News Africa, lost his hard pass. Ateba, along with um, the other 441 reporters who no longer have credentials, won't be able to attend White House press briefings or access the sprawling Pennsylvania Avenue campus unless they obtain what's called a temporary day pass. The White House announced new rules in May to limit the number of journalists who are eligible for a White House hard pass. Reporters are still allowed to apply for a day pass, but they must do so daily and undergo Secret Service review. Up until this week, the White House didn't disclose the number of reporters who had a hard pass. Who had a hard pass. Politico reported that within the past three months, the number of hard pass holders dropped from 1,417 to 975, with those approved reflecting a mix of renewals and new applications. A spokesperson for the White House confirmed to Politico that one individual who applied for a hard pass was denied under the new rules. The White House didn't disclose the reporter's name. The six rules outlined in the May memo require reporters to be employed full time at an organization that disseminates news, live in Washington, D.C., in the area, regularly access and cover the White House and submit to a Secret Service uh, investigation. They also now require pass holders to first obtain accreditation by a press gallery in either the U.S. Senate, U.S. House of Representatives or the Supreme Court. Um, the memo also gives the president uh, press team greater power to expel journalists who don't act in a professional manner. End quote. Ateba regularly sparred with White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre, leading to stories in The New York Times, The Washington Post and an appearance on the now canceled Tucker Carlson tonight. Um, last month, the White House press office sent Atebe a warning that he risks expulsion if he continued to interrupt briefings in violation of the new rules. Well, he did, and he's now out. These new rules are were imp, um, implemented by the most transparent of administrations that seems to constrict what that definition of transparency actually is. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll talk about the upcoming Supreme Court cases that could dramatically rein in the regulatory state. That coming up in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, this fall, the Supreme Court's going to hear several cases affording promising opportunities to reign in the federal administrative state. Every holding encompasses weighty issues, and a Supreme Court decision on any one of them would have serious repercussions for agencies and regulated parties alike. Juries are a democratic counterbalance to the influence otherwise held exclusively by a judge or powerful administrator. Well, this fall, the Supreme Court is going to hear several cases affording promising opportunities to reign in the federal administrative case. They've agreed to decide cases that challenge the practice of federal courts, showing judicial deference to agency interpretations of the law that they're charged with enforcing as well as 
the constitutionality of an agency funding scheme that frees from the uh, that's free rather from the congressional appropriations process and regular congressional oversight. Well, the court has also agreed to hear a case that may restore one of the greatest innovations of free people, the jury trial. To a whole class of civil cases currently prosecuted by administrative agencies and presided over solely by judges employed by those agencies. Well, the potential of SEC versus Jarsky to instate the right to a jury trial in administrative civil cases could make it one of the most consequential cases in the upcoming term. Well, the case was brought by George Jarsky, a hedge fund manager who the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission accused of overestimating the value of some of his assets and making false claims. The SEC chose to pursue Jarsky's um, uh, through its internal juryless adjudication process in which the SEC appointed administrative law judge assessed the sufficiency of the evidence against him. Well, the Seventh Amendment to the Constitution explicitly requires in suits at common law, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved. Fraud is a long recognized common law crime. Yet under current practice, the SEC can enforce securities law and seek a civil penalty for fraud in juryless uh, proceedings and proceedings like Jaraski's or, or Jarsky's. Rather, the government is seemingly exercising authority in a suit of common law. But by conducting the prosecution outside traditional courtrooms, it believes it can deprive the accused of the protections of a jury trial. And the Supreme Court's going to consider whether or not that will be allowed to continue. That fact and others did not sit well with the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, which ruled in Jarsky's favor on three grounds. First, the SEC violated his Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial. Second, Congress has impermissibly delegated lawmaking authority to the SEC. And third, the SEC board members are unconstitutionally protected from removal by the president. Each holding encompasses pretty weighty issues, and a Supreme Court decision on any one of them would have serious repercussions for agencies and regulated parties alike. But the jury trial question carries a unique historical significance and a unique opportunity to better reconcile administrative enforcement actions with the Republican principles of the nation's founding. Therefore, the Supreme Court should affirm the Fifth Circuit's ruling that the Seventh Amendment guarantees petitioners a jury trial because the SEC's enforcement action is akin to traditional actions at law to which the jury trial right attaches. And we'll see what uh, what happens, but it will be a consequential a consequential season for the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, it always is, but this has the potential to have far reaching implications as well. Well, there's a group of uh, people who control what you are allowed to see, the news you read, the news you hear, the videos you watch, the posts you engage with. Well, Ben Shapiro in a recent column said, meet the company that's trying to control your mind. Now, is he overstating the case? He writes, you haven't heard of them. You don't know their names, but they determine through methods, both direct and indirect, whether you're allowed to be exposed to particular messages. Their decisions can bankrupt companies, silence voices, and fundamentally shift cultural norms. Who are these people and how do they do this? Well, at the top level, you have a network of global elites who have created a universal framework full of guidelines and ratings designed to enforce approved narratives and punish disapproved ones. It sounds like a conspiracy theory, except it isn't a secret and we're not guessing. First, you have the World Economic Forum, the WEF. And their platform for shaping the future of media, entertainment and culture. Second, you have the World Federation of Advertisers, the WFA, 
who represent mega corporations that control 90% of global advertising dollars. WFA members are a who's who of the global business and include some of our recent wokeified favorites like Bud Light's parent company, Anheuser-Busch, InBev, uh, Hershey, Procter Gamble, Lego, and Disney. There's barely a billionaire Fortune 500 CEO, heavyweight, philanthropist, government, or woke nonprofit that isn't associated with the World Economic Forum or the World uh, uh, Federation of Advertisers, the WEF and the WFA. In 2019, the WFA, the advertisers, established the Global Alliance for Responsible Media, or GARM, uh, within months, the WEF adopted GARM as part of its platform for shaping the future of media, entertainment, and culture. GARM is a cross-industry uh, cross alliance that brings these mega corporations, the advertisers, together with big tech companies like Meta, who owns Facebook and Instagram, Google-owned YouTube, the CCP's TikTok, and even Snapchat and Pinterest. Now, you think of these as individual uh, entities, but they are through this configuration somehow connected. Well, this unholy alliance created something they call the brand safety floor and suitability framework. Think of brand safety as a dog whistle for censorship. They say it themselves. The brand safety floor means content not appropriate for any advertising support. In other words, if you publish content that violates these guidelines, you will be blacklisted from 90% of the advertising revenue in the marketplace. So what have these global elites decided to put in their censorship framework? Well, they started with things that we um, call universally agreed on, like preventing the distribution of child pornography or the advocacy of graphic terrorist activity. Okay, we can all agree on that. But they don't draw the line at what is objectively criminal, abusive or dangerous. They continue expanding the guidelines uh, to include far more uh, subjective parameters. For example, the framework lists subjective terms like hate speech as a problem. It says that anything surrounding transgenderism that they decide is dehumanizing or discussing what they deem to be debated social issue in an insensitive way is off limits. The framework is deliberately vague, allowing those in control to pick and choose how they enforce it and against whom. So how exactly do the approved narratives set by these global entities get enforced all the way down to the daily content you consume? Well, here's how. We'll start with uh, NewsGuard. NewsGuard is an organization that formulates ratings for American media. They rank news sites from 0 to 100 scale based on nine supposedly apolitical criteria. Supposedly. These criteria are anything but apolitical. They often align with left-wing positions. Well, during the height of COVID-19, NewsGuard falsely labeled and downgraded 21 news sites only... Um, well, after the fact, admitting that they either mischaracterized the site's claims about the lab leak theory, referring to the lab leak theory of, uh, as a conspiracy theory, or wrongly grouped together unproven claims about the lab leak with a separate false claim that the COVID-19 virus was man-made without explaining that one claim was unsubstantiated and the other was false. Well, NewsGuard apologizes for these errors, they said. We have made the appropriate correction in each of the 21 labels. And when you compare their ratings of left-leaning news organizations to right-leaning news organizations, you see the same bias appear. The Media Research Center, a free speech nonprofit, studied NewsGuard's ratings. The study found glaring examples of bias by NewsGuard. 
The buzz, uh, the left's BuzzFeed managed a 100 out of 100 perfect score, despite its reporting on the Steele dossier and alleging collusion between former President Donald Trump and Russia, which has been soundly disproven. The study found that the Global Times, a Chinese propaganda government outlet, scored a 39.5. That is uh, 27 points higher than the U.S.-based conservative outlet the federalist and despite a scandal at usa today revealing the publication of multiple fabricated sources in their stories and their own fact-checked operation misleading readers on the history of the democratic party and the kkk usa today maintained a 100 out of 100 rating by newsguard well newsguard is also working with others to use ai artificial intelligence technology to enforce brand safety standards at scale by identifying scalable hoaxes and misinformation in order to streamline blanket removal. This means that the news that you read, news that is supposed to be fair and objective or at least diverse, must adhere to GARM, the WEF, the WFA and their subjective and biased standards in order to be deemed monetized. If you think this is only something big news corporations have to contend with, well, think again. Even the content you consume from independent content creators on social media platforms are subject to these globalist powers that be. The WEF, GARM, and the WFE are all actively working with social media companies to censor what they consider to be misinformation, which very often is just good information with which they disagree. Finally, the WEF, WFA, and GARM are all aggressively pouring billions of dollars a year into news and content that drives their preferred narrative. Narratives that are often counterfactual at best and harmful at worst. When you look at the news, you need to feel as though you're getting all the information. And even if one source isn't giving you all the information, you can find another source and all the sources together will give you a broad view of the world. But the World Economic Forum, the World Federation of Advertisers and the Global Alliance for Responsible Media don't want you to have a full view of the news. They want you to see what they want you to see, and they work to prevent anyone from disseminating information they don't pre-approve. They're determining what you see, what you hear, and what you watch. And that's dangerous. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, experts are revealing the full extent of COVID-19 school closures, and according to the study, a generation of American students has fallen behind academically in the wake of the pandemic and the forced school closures that took place during that time. A subcommittee of the House Committee on Education and the Workforce addressed the problems created by school closures on Wednesday last in a panel called Generational Learning Loss, How Pandemic School Closures Hurt Students. Well, the subcommittee chaired Representative Aaron Bean, a Republican out of Florida, spoke about how bad COVID-19 policies snowballed rather into a collapse and a catastrophe uh, that many parents saw coming. In only a matter of two years, a generation of progress was lost. The great irony of COVID was how the majority of parents so easily predicted online education and school closures would be determined or and detrimental rather to students and how so many bureaucratic educational experts with all the research power in the world took years to reach the same conclusion. Well, Bean said that the National Assessment of Educational Progress, also known as the nation's report card, assessed students across the country and found that 2022 In 2022, reading, math, and civics scores had plummeted to their lowest point in two decades. 
The mass shuttering of schools throughout the pandemic is one of our greatest educational policy failures in our nation's history, he went on to say. Well, teachers unions in particular prolonged school closures, according to Bean. A Brookings Institute study found that school districts with lengthier collective bargaining agreements were less likely to start the fall of 2020 semester with in-person instruction. And further explained that data shows that longer shutdowns were not predicted Uh, or rather predicated on pandemic severity. Bean said that not only is it essential to look back on what went right and wrong for schools during the pandemic, but to look into what happened to the $190 billion in federal money spent on education during that time. Several witnesses in the hearing spoke about how extended school closures created huge setbacks for students that they are still paying for today. Now, not um, uh, Nat Malkus, senior fellow and deputy director of education policy at the American Enterprise Institute, said that extended school closures had the largest impact on education outcomes and that policymakers largely had control over these decisions. He also explained that. Most opening and closing decisions were political as decisions to open or stay closed had no correlation with the number of COVID-19 cases per capita, but a strong correlation with the dominant political party in the education district, with uh, some uh, districts far more likely to have extended closures, one party over the other. This had a huge and disparate impact on school outcomes. The third of um, districts that were most in-person in 2021 lost 44% of a year's progress in math. The most remote third lost over 60% uh, of a year. According to uh, Malchus, extended remote learning wasn't the only cause of students uh, falling behind. He said that the instability of quarantines, uh, spikes in chronic absenteeism, disruptions in learning, all hampered teacher capacity and student learning. An education policy expert and president of 50 Can, Daryl Bradford, it's an organization that advocates for the local level for education reform, spoke about how teachers unions played an outsized role in extending school closures. He said that it's sophistry to suggest that teachers unions had no role in keeping schools closed longer than they had uh, had to during COVID-19. He said that the prolonged shutdown of schools has triggered uh, by a series of labor actions starting in Kentucky and Oklahoma that really blew up in Chicago and Los Angeles during the Democratic presidential primaries. The education expert said that these strikes were for pay increases. Teachers unions saw this as a once in a lifetime opportunity to get teacher pay on a federal balance sheet. Uh, referring to the opportunity of the COVID-19 pandemic and all the extra emergency funds coming from Washington to assist schools. He also explained that he had initially been for school closure in the opening days of the pandemic, but the effects of the long-term school lockdowns have been disastrous. 20 years worth of learning has been erased, he said, in, this, uh, in schools in New York. This is a generational tragedy. He also spoke about how emergency federal funds for schools had been spent and pointed to a report in the New York Times in Klamath County, Oregon. They were spending 70 percent of their relief dollars to buy turf fields, renovate bleachers, build a gym, resurface a parking lot. Sadly, what's been proven is that if you give American schools one hundred and ninety billion dollars in a black box with no accountability, they'll spend the money on themselves. End quote. Well, he continued to say that the school closures and response to covid-19 were the biggest policy failure of his lifetime. Meanwhile, House Republicans are threatening to block the president's uh, from agreeing to Beijing's reported demand that the U.S. lift human rights sanctions against China in exchange for cooperation on fentanyl trafficking. The Chinese Communist Party is using American lives as a bargaining chip to achieve sanctions relief for its human rights abuses. 
Representative Young Kim, a Republican out of California, House Foreign Affairs Committee Chair Michael McCall, a Republican out of Texas, and China Select Committee Chair Michael Gallagher of Wisconsin wrote to the Biden administration. Their letter sent to the Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and Commerce Secretary Gina Riamondo cited a Wall Street Journal report that said Chinese officials want Biden to lift certain economic penalties related to the Chinese Communist Party's human rights abuses in exchange for Beijing's help to uh, stem the flow of fentanyl ravaging the country. They also warned that if the talks continue in that direction, Congress would move to block the effort. Given how many of our constituents have died from fentanyl overdoses, we expect the, the administration to regularly engage our offices on efforts it is taking to hold the PRC accountable to these obligations, the letter said. We do not support lifting export controls or sanctions as a condition for cooperation with China, and we are considering legislation to ensure the administration cannot circumvent Congress. China's Ministry of Public Security's Institute of Forensic Science was added to the Department of Commerce's entity list on the 5th of June back in 2020 for engaging in human rights violations and abuses in Xinjiang uh, Uyghur Autonomous Region. They added that this demonstrates the the Communist Chinese Party's continued efforts to link unrelated issues as a negotiating tactic and to leverage diplomatic engagement as a reward for their perceived good behavior is unacceptable. We'll continue to follow that story as it develops. In other news, three people are dead after two firefighting helicopters collided midair on Sunday night during an attempt to extinguish a brush fire in Riverside County, California. The crash took place in the area of Pipeline Road and Apache Trail. The pilot and two crew members on board were killed when the chopper crashed into the hillside. The second helicopter made a hard landing, but no serious injuries were reported. The Federal Aviation Administration and National Transportation Safety Board are investigating the collision. Very dangerous work. Families of 13 service members killed during Afghanistan's withdrawal or the withdrawal from Afghanistan participated in an emotional congressional forum this morning, nearly a month after the State Department's release of a review criticizing both the Trump and Biden administrations for the pullout. The State Department conducted more than 150 interviews over a 90-day period to compile the report, which was publicized on uh, uh, Friday. Notably, 13 American service members died in a suicide bombing at Kabul's airport during the controversial withdrawal, which concluded on the 30th of August, 2021. The report found that both Presidents Trump and Biden had insufficient senior-level consideration of what could go wrong during the withdrawal. Housing affordability in the U.S. has hit a record low. Global Markets publication, the uh, Cobesi letter, declared last week that housing affordability in America is now at an all-time low, pointing to several striking data points, showing it's more expensive to pay for a place to live in the U.S. than ever. For starters, the outlet said buying a house in the U.S. has become a luxury. It pointed to a Redfin report uh, released on Friday showing the median home mortgage payment in the U.S. hit $2,600 a month in July. That's up 19% from a year ago and the most expensive ever. Kobasi reported that 
there is there are now a record 31 states where home ownership homeowners rather pay a median monthly house payment of two thousand dollars per month. And Hawaii is now the first state in history with a median house payment of above five thousand dollars. Not far behind are Californians whose median mortgage is forty eight hundred, followed by Massachusetts homeowners who pay four thousand dollars a month. Thirty seven states now require at least 30 percent of median annual income for new home payments. And what the letter said truly is an un precedent in market. In California, the median house payment requires a record 64% of median household income. It's not just pricey to buy a home. Renting one will also set Americans back more than ever before. The median asked rent for a single family home just reached an all-time high of $1,900 a month. Adam Kobesi, the letter's founder and editor-in-chief, noted that affordability is even lower than in housing crisis of 2008. But the market circumstances are much different today. Uh, This is primarily a supply issue, not necessarily a demand issue. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, news and traffic, up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue to take a look at some of the day's news and a conversation I had with Charles Martin. They turned the world upside down. Also, we're going to take a look at an article that recently published that indicated you cannot change your race. Apparently, there are some things that are fixed and immutable. But it's a very short list these days. Representative Dean Phillips, a Democrat out of Minnesota on Sunday, called for more Democrats to enter the 2024 primary against President Biden, making the argument that the party and the country are in need of competition. Phillips declined to make an announcement about his own political aspirations during his appearance on CBS News Face the Nation, but called on other Democrats to challenge the president. Democrats are telling me that they want not a coronation, but they want a competition, he said. The New York Times poll uh, from this week shows 55 percent of Democratic voters want some alternatives to the current people in the primary. Eighty three percent of those under 30 Democrats under 30 want alternatives and about 76 percent are independents. If we don't heed that call, shame on us, the congressman continued. And the consequences, I believe, are going to be disastrous. So my call is to those who are well positioned, well prepared have good character and competency. Uh, They know who they are to jump in because Democrats and the country need competition. It makes everything better. That's my call to them right now, end quote. Well, Phillips praised Biden as an amazing man who has led this country through extraordinarily difficult times, but he argued that the Democratic Party, which currently only has three candidates in the presidential primary, is doing the American people a disservice by not offering more choices. Conservatives and supporters of former President Donald Trump erupted over the weekend after Secretary of State Anthony Blinken issued a tweet condemning Russia's prosecution of opposition leader Aleski Navalny. A Russian court convicted Navalny of uh, charge on charges of extremism and sentenced him to 19 years in prison on Friday, one day after Trump was arraigned in federal court on charges related to the 2020 presidential election and the Capitol riot on June, uh, rather January 6, 21. The United States strongly condemns Russia's conviction of opposition leader Navalny on political, politically motivated charges, Blinken posted on Friday. The Kremlin cannot silence the truth. Navalny should be released. The Secretary of State's post came one day after Trump, the current frontrunner in the 2024 Republican presidential primary, was arraigned on federal charges alleging that he had orchestrated a plan to overturn the results of the 2020 election against President Biden. Critics who argue Trump is being politically prosecuted called Blinken's tweet condemning Russian state prosecutions ironic 
tone deaf and tyrannical. The White House and Department of Justice didn't respond to requests for a rebuttal to the criticism. Well, Portland lost over 14,000 residents, resulting in a $1 billion in lost revenue between 2020 and 21. It's not surprising. Crime, uh, crime rather, exploded in the city with uh, the homicide record being broken two consecutive years, both in 21 and 22. Portland lost $1 billion between 2020 and 21 as residents fled homelessness and crime, taking their tax dollars with them. According to an analysis of the Internal Revenue Service data by Oregon Live, Multnomah County, where Portland is located, hemorrhaged 14,257 persons filing taxes, resulting in a record loss of $1 billion in revenue. Those who moved were also relatively wealthy, with the former residents holding incomes 14% higher than persons who had moved out of the area the year before. Over the course of the year, the average income of County residents who stayed declined slightly. That's a large shift for the Portland area historically, which had experienced 15 consecutive years of growth only to become one of America's fastest shrinking cities. A federal judge ordered Illinois to stop enforcing a law that restricts the speech of pro-life pregnancy centers while litigation over the constitutionality of the restrictions continues. Judge Lane D. Johnston provided a pro-life pregnancy centers with temporary relief on the 3rd of August so that they can freely advertise their services and speak to their clients freely. The order, which came one week after the law went into effect, does not settle the question of the constitutionality of the restrictions, but will ensure their speech isn't restricted as they wait a final ruling. Several pro-life pregnancy centers sued Attorney General Kwame Raul over the law, which could result in fines of $50,000 for speech that the state determines is deceptive or misrepresents or omits information related to abortion. Pregnancy resource centers are community-based charities that provide information that women likely will not learn at an abortion facility, including abortion risks, fetal development, and the support services available to pregnant and parenting mothers. Their clients overwhelmingly report positive experiences. During the debate in the state legislature, Republican lawmakers pointed out that the attorney general's office has not received a single complaint about a pro-life pregnancy resource center for as far back as they've checked, at least 10 years. Across the um, the country, pregnancy centers have become a target of attacks from arson and vandalism to legislation to media hit pieces and pro-abortion campaigns as well. A combined Russian and Chinese naval force patrolled near the coast of Alaska last week in what U.S. experts said appeared to be the largest such flotilla to approach American shores. Eleven Russian and Chinese ships steamed close to the Aleutian Islands, according to the U.S. officials. The ships, which never entered U.S. territorial waters and have since left, were shadowed by four U.S. destroyers and P-8 Poseidon aircraft. There is currently a struggle for dominance and power in the Arctic region, which is becoming contested territory, and the Russian-Chinese naval patrols appear to be part of that struggle, the journal reported. Their work together in the region is a sign of increasing cooperation between Moscow and Beijing, according to the Arctic Council, which is an intergovernmental forum focused on the Arctic. The Aleut region, where the Aleutian Islands are located, is referred to as the doorway to the Arctic. Eight countries that have territory in the Arctic make up the Arctic Council and are stewards of the region, according to the council's website. Well, the U.S. women's soccer team was heavily favored to win the 2023 
2023 FIFA Women's World Cup. But under team captain Megan Rapinoe, the women's dreams of victory have been dashed. The U.S. was a two-time defender champion, or defending champion. England is now the favorite to win the cup. The U.S. lost in the last 16 round in a 5-4 shootout against Sweden, who now moves on to on in the tournament. Prior to Joe Biden's politically motivated decision to open the release and release millions of barrels of oil from the nation's strategic petroleum reserve in a vain effort to combat spiking gas prices in late 21, his top energy official held secret talks with China. It has come to light that the energy secretary, Jennifer Granholm, had several meetings with China's National Energy Administrator, Chairman Zhang Jianhua, wherein the two reportedly discussed energy policy. Biden's subsequent action to drain roughly 250 million barrels of oil from the SPR, putting it at its lowest level in almost 40 years, appears to be a decision that most benefits China, raising the question of Beijing's influence over Biden's energy policy. Instead of focusing on creating real energy independence for America, Granholm has been too busy parroting Chinese energy propaganda and insisting we can all learn from what China is doing. The Americans for Public Trust Executive Director Caitlin Sutherland opined, The public deserves to know the extent to which Chinese officials are attempting to infiltrate U.S. energy policy and security. And finally, on this day in history, 1782, General George Washington creates the Order of the Purple Heart, a decoration to recognize merit of enlisted men and non-commissioned officers. 1959, the United States launched the Explorer 6 satellite, which sent back images of Earth. 1964, Congress passes the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, giving President Lyndon Baines Johnson broad powers in dealing with reported North Vietnamese attacks on U.S. forces. 1971, the Apollo 15 moon mission ends successfully as its command module rather splashed down in the Pacific Ocean. 1998, terrorist bombs at U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania killed 224 people, including 12 Americans. 2000, Vice President and Democratic presidential candidate Al Gore selects Connecticut Senator Joe Lieberman as his running mate. Lieberman became the first person of Jewish descent on a major party's presidential ticket. 2010, Elena Kagan is sworn in as the 112th justice and fourth woman to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court. And 218, Chicago police say they will deploy hundreds of additional officers to neighborhoods where a surge of gun violence over the weekend leaves at least 11 people dead and 70 wounded. And finally, on this day in history, 2019, Representative Joaquin Castro, a Democrat out of Texas, faces backlash for posting the names and employers of dozens of Trump campaign donors in the San Antonio area. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll have a conversation with Charles Martin. They turned the world upside down. That and more when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, in the first century, believer didn't just mean someone who heard and agreed with Jesus. It actually meant someone who acted on that belief. And when the outside world saw the faith of these new believers, they declared they turned the world upside down. You can read more in the 17th chapter of Acts. Well, that's the kind of believer my next guest, Charles Martin, wants to be. The kind who understands that the truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is so powerful, it reshaped history. 
the kind of believer who lives with that same world-changing faith today. Well, in his second nonfiction work, They Turn the World Upside Down, a storyteller's journey with those who dare to follow Jesus, he uses his talents as a novelist to walk readers through the lives of the disciples in the aftermath of the resurrection and as they spread the message of the gospel and turn the world upside down. He illuminates key moments from scripture and shares stories from his own life as a disciple. Well, Charles Martin is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with 15 novels and two nonfiction books. He and his wife, uh, Christy, they live in Jacksonville, Florida. He joins us today to talk about his latest nonfiction. They turn the world upside down. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I have to tell you, you write beautifully. And the fact that you're a novelist, I think, was very evident, even in the prologue, as you um, wrote a little bit about the, the events that took place following Jesus' resurrection. You painted such a vivid picture that for the first time, I imagined aspects of the story that I had never thought of before. So kudos on just writing well and telling a story we all need to hear in such a compelling way that we... Uh, I think readers will be uh, compelled to go deeper. Well, I did that. Thank you. I did that then, and, I, and I, even today, when I'm you know working on whatever's coming next. I, anytime I deal with scripture and I'm I'm looking at it through the lens of me as you know Charles Martin, the novelist, I remember the admonition and revelation that says it's really it's really bad for anybody that comes along and adds to this thing. So I'm trying to like the the thing that you talk about where I'm adding color or flavor or whatever. I'm trying to interpret scripture using scripture. So. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm hoping that I've not added. I'm hoping that I've, I've you know I dug into scripture enough, and I'm able to you know draw from it, draw from history, and add some I don't know something that wasn't there before that kind of brings you into it. And and I think I'm also careful to say, look, scripture is here. It says what it says. I'm kind of over here. I'm trying. I don't know that what I'm saying is absolutely perfect. I don't know that so and so was standing at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified. But if he had done to me, but what he did to them, I'd be there. So anyway, that's how I went about it. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciated that you you gave some context that helped me to relate. It wasn't adding to the story, but you reminded us, for example, when they're standing in a particular place, the events that took place in the surrounding area, and it it gave me a context that. I don't know. I, I just marveled at. So I, I think you've done a good job without adding in a way that Scripture says you shouldn't. So let me just commend you for that. Thank you. Well, let me ask you, what motivated you to take on this uh, story? It's a nonfiction book. And as I mentioned, most of your writing has been uh, fiction. But you've taken on uh, perhaps one of the most fascinating stories following the resurrection of Jesus, of his disciples, and what it meant, what it took to turn the world upside down. Why take this on? Well, I was, I don't know, I was 12 or so novels kind of into my career, and I was sitting there one day, uh, and I began having a kind of a conversation with the Lord saying something that sounded like, Lord, I'm really grateful that you let me do what I do, but if I could push pause on my fiction, I would love to, to sort of tell the story of you and me and kind of what you've revealed to me about you through your word. And long story short, I, I, I pitched my publisher she liked the idea. She'd seen some of the stuff I'd done before. So that, that produced a book called What If It's True, where I really look at, mm-hmm. you know, is Scripture, is it really true today? You know, can we look at it 2,000 years after Jesus said those things, and are they as true today as they were then? Well, when I finished that, she <laughs> Daisy said to me, do you have any more nonfiction? I said, well, the story's not over. It doesn't end at the cross. There is an empty tomb. And uh, she said, okay, write that one. So they turned the world upside down. 
really came out of me looking at the lives of the disciples who, when he walked into the upper room, Jesus' own description of them is that they were filled with unbelief. So he takes them from a place of unbelief and not being able to just wrap their head around what they're looking at. And by the time we get to Acts 16 or 17, when Paul walks into Thessalonica, he and those with him are described as these who are they who have turned the world upside down or upended the inhabited earth. And it's really a derogatory term because they now have what people people perceive as the power to take on Rome. So it was just me wanting to write part two of the story because it, you know, the story of Jesus doesn't end at the cross. There is an empty tomb. Let's let's take a moment and uh, consider what it means to turn the world upside down. I mean, most of us don't really create even a breeze in the world. They turned the world upside down. These were not people who had the completed scriptures. They were living out what (laughs) would become the completed scriptures, but they had received the power necessary to make such a dramatic impact on the world they lived in. They didn't have the freedoms and the resources that we have. And yet they literally turned the world upside down. Can you comment on that fact for a moment? Well, when these folks, you know, Jesus, Jesus ascends off the Mount of Olives and he, you know, all of the disciples and their families are there with him. They watch him disappear. Something like Haley's comet appears. And those folks start walking down the mountain. And I think, you know, Scripture doesn't say this, but I think every single one of them walked down that hill thinking to themselves, okay, what on earth do we do now? We have his commands. We've walked with him. We've followed him. We know what he told us to do, but we don't have the power. And then a couple of days later, the roof starts to shake and Pentecost occurs, and they are filled with the Spirit of God because he's been sent from the throne room to fill them from there. They walk out of there now empowered to do the very thing he said to do. Jesus told him, he said, these things I've done, I mean, these miracles I've done, these signs and wonders, these things I've done and you will do because I go to be with the Father. So they just believed him. This is one of the things I try to talk about in the book. They believed what he said, and then they just went and did it. It was believe and do, believe and do. It was really that simple. It wasn't rocket science. If it was, we certainly couldn't do it. So, <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Well, what's your take on the <laughs> disciples? Why do you think Jesus chose these particular individuals uh, to, to serve in this way and ultimately to orchestrate the upheaval of the the entire known world? Well, that's a great question. I don't know. Sometimes I get asked questions like that. I think it's above my pay grade. Maybe a more <laughs> a fair question for me is why would the Lord choose me? And yeah. I can't answer that one either. I, I don't know. I can't understand why the God of the universe, this one that we read about in Revelation, whose eyes are a flame of fire, hair white, you know, sword coming out of his mouth, name written on his thigh, feet of burnished bronze. But he sits on a throne and there are 24 elders around him and they're all on their face and they've thrown their crowns at his feet and the heavenly host is singing at the top of their lungs and I don't pretend to understand all of Revelation or what it means. or you know, I, I mean, All I know is that King of Kings, that Alpha and Omega, that beginning and that end, who spoke all of this and you and me into existence, left that throne to come here on a prisoner swap, a rescue mission for us. And I can't, I'm not worthy of that. And I can't wrap my head around it. So why did he choose them? I don't know. I have even less answer as to why he chooses me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Your first chapter is um, titled The Death 
of the only innocent man, and that would, of course, be Jesus having lived a sinless uh, life. And again, you sort of fill out um, the picture of the events that we know Scripture uh, describes for us of what happened. And I I guess uh, the book really focuses on what happens next. You have these ordinary guys who have proven themselves incapable of grasping everything that Jesus says, incapable of uh, having the courage to stand with him at his most challenging moments. And he has now charged them with bringing the gospel to the world. Um, and they had to have had some confusion about what that meant or how they would go about it until Jesus fulfilled that promise that he would send his spirit. Sure. I try to look at their lives through the lens of what did the Lord have to do in them after mm-hmm. the resurrection? Because they're all a bunch of misfits like us. I mean, uh, Take, for instance, the loudmouth spokesman, you know, of the group, Peter, who at the crucifixion, we all know, denies Jesus. And so he and, and, and then upon the resurrection, he's he's full of shame. He's draped in shame, wrapped in it. And he doesn't quite know what to do. He knows Jesus has returned, but he can't even face him. So he 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 does the thing that he the only thing he knows to do, which is go back to his previous life. So he says, I'm going fishing. And all the other jokers following back back to the north into the Galilee, and notice Peter is now no longer following Jesus. He's back in his old life, doing what he knew to do, and he's draped in shame. And we see this beautiful story of Jesus drawing Peter back in, and he, you know, he builds the fire on the bit of charcoal fire, which immediately brings Peter's mind back to the night he did, he betrayed Jesus and denied him because he was around the. He's there with the girl, and he's around a charcoal fire. So as soon as Peter smells that, he's like, oh, no, my goose is cooked. And he sees Jesus, and he also doesn't say, hey, tell me to come to you. He doesn't feel worthy to walk on water, so he wraps his cloak around him, which is different than anybody else. Like Bartimaeus threw his cloak down. Peter wraps his around himself to go swimming, lands on the beach. He can't even look Jesus in the face. And in just beautiful Jesus, mercy-filled fashion. He restores Peter. And it's just this beautiful, do you love me? Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, yes, Lord. And and, then Jesus says the very two words that Peter needs to hear, which is, hey, follow me. And now he knows he's not disqualified. And from there, we see the shame fall off him. And in Acts 2, Peter walks up and gives probably the second best sermon in the history of sermons. And 3,000 people are added to the number. And Peter becomes who we all hope he becomes. And so, I don't know, I just looked at it from the standpoint of what did the Lord need to do in these people to get them to the point that they're effective in his kingdom for his purposes and his will? And does he do that in us? And yes, I think he does. Yeah, that's the, the, that the larger question. I think it's easier for us to read the scriptures and to believe what happened with these particular uh, men who were followers of Jesus. But it's harder for us to recognize that we have access to the same uh, power that they did. Now, we need to take a quick break. We'll pursue that when we return in just a moment. Uh, once again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with um, Charles Martin. He is the author of They Turned the World Upside Down. It's just a beautifully written uh, retelling of what the scripture says and a challenge to us. Do we have access to the same resource they did to turn our world upside down, even if that's just the neighborhood or our office? We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. 
You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with author Charles Martin. In his second nonfiction work, They Turned the World Upside Down, he um, uses his talents as a novelist to walk readers through the lives of the disciples in the aftermath of the resurrection and as they spread the message of the gospel and turn the world upside down. You remind us that Matthew concludes his gospel with these amazing words. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then... Um, uh, Mark ends uh, with this scathing account. He appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Doubt was a, an issue for these disciples, and f- with that uh, backstory, we read that they turned the world upside down. What happened with the disciples that turned them from these uh, doubting, uh, questioning uh, men who had known Jesus, had seen him a- after being resurrected, uh, and then turned the world upside down. They they weren't quite sure what to do, but gathered together, waited, and turned the world upside down. What happened? Yeah, I think they took it in baby. I think they took it in baby steps. Um, all, all all I know to when I look at them, the the, the prism through which I see them, I, I just see them taking one step of faith and then another step of faith and then another step of faith. And they preached the gospel of the kingdom and they laid hands on the sick and the sick were healed and demons were cast out and, you know, the blind see and the lame walk. And they, I think they just did it as it came about. They just bumped into somebody who's blind or lame or whatever. And they say, rise and get up and walk in the name of Jesus. And, Oh, they lay hands on the sick and, and tell people, uh, you know, believe in or believe on the name of Jesus, that he is Yeshua HaMashiach, the, the Messiah. And I don't think they got it all at once. I don't think they mastered, you know, they, they didn't they didn't get to the end from, you know, at the very beginning. I think it was a walk. I think it was, you know, they made, they goofed, they stumbled some, whatever. But I think the thing that the Lord did with them is he took their unbelief and threw Little acts of faith, that unbelief became belief, and belief in practice, I think, becomes faithfulness. And I think that's who they finally became. I think they became faithful followers of the Lord. You know, the Scripture says, without faith, it's impossible to please Him, and we walk by faith and not by sight. And I think they just did that, and something about their belief like they, they just got to the point where they believed his words more than their circumstances and more than what they could see with their eyes. You write about Pentecost and the role that played in emboldening and empowering because they were given power to do what they did that, that resulted in such a dramatic shift in the known world. Um, talk a bit about uh, uh, Pentecost and the power that Jesus had promised he would provide them and the difference it made for them and whether or not it makes a difference, fast forwarding to the 21st century, the difference it might make now. Well, Pentecost falls 50 days after Passover. So Peter preaches on the southern steps of the temple. The Spirit of God falls as he's promised a couple of times in the Old Testament. The Father says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. He did that, empowered the disciples and in those, you know, the believers who walked with him. And we see sort of the ripple effects of that. If you follow the the disciple Philip, Philip is actually the only the only person in Scripture who, who's given the name the evangelist. He's the only person described as an evangelist. Now Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist, but the only one ever described as an evangelist is Philip. 
And it says that when he would enter a town, he would proclaim Christ, meaning Jesus is the Messiah, the kingdom of heaven is near. And when he did that, demons were cast out, the, the sick were healed, and people got baptized. And it was, it was as if the kingdom of heaven had come to wherever he was. And for me, that's just kind of been the model. It was just really simple. I mean, Philip just proclaimed Jesus as the Christ. He is the Son of God. He did come and live a sinless life and die on the cross for our sins. He's risen. He rose from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of the Father right now. And to help us, he sent his spirit. It was just, that was the gospel. So, I don't know. I think they just believed him and they did it. For many believers in the 21st century, we don't have any difficulty reading what the disciples did, their faithful service. And historically, we know how many of them served um, beyond what the scriptures tell us, and many lost their lives in that, that process. But it may be more difficult to imagine that we have the capacity or the call, uh, perhaps, uh, to turn the world upside down as our world is defined. And again, our sphere of influence may be relatively small. We may have a broader influence. But we have access to the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Where does our timidity come from, and what do, we, what do we do with that? Well, I think the timidity we have is the same timidity they, have, mm-hmm. they had. And it was just, you know, it's just uh, us. I think when the, the writer of Hebrews says something like, take care, lest any of you be overcome by a, an evil, unbelieving heart. So then and now, unbelief was kind of their problem and our problem. The thing that I... I think, I think to some extent it may be, I don't know, I don't want to compare us to them, but we have the added difficulty now in that the gospel has been preached for 2,000 years, and during that time people have abused it. Mm-hmm. And they've certainly abused the power of the Holy Spirit. So we today, and certainly in 21st century you know, United States of America, have all of these examples of all of the places where you know, people have abused the, the power, role, truth, you know, of the Holy Spirit today. And so what, what we think of are big hair, TV, television, planes, jets, you know, the, the, I don't know, pick your abuse. But we have the added difficulty of now trying to filter through the abuse and separating it from the truth of Scripture. And one of the things I try to make a case for in the book is that the abuse that we've seen or experienced or even heard of or people have told us about does not negate the truth that, in script, that is in Scripture and that Jesus tells us and promises us, I will send the helper to you. Now, if you love me, obey my commands. So I, I try to give us, you know, a little bit of understanding that it, maybe, it's, maybe it's a different kind of difficulty for us today because we have to wrestle through the abuses, but the abuses of the few or the church or whatever don't negate the truth that is in Scripture. You not only write about the disciples who walked with Jesus and who turned the world upside down, but you write a little bit about your own journey as a disciple. Tell us a little bit about your um, your walk and your experience um, of obedience and faithfulness and uh, how you have experienced what the disciples did in God giving you the, the capacity to serve him well. <laughs> well, there's the there, maybe there's the assumption there that I've always been obedient or I've always been faithful, and neither of which would be true. But one of the things I love about um, one of the things I love about walking with the Lord and reading His Word, and, and I do love His Word. And, and, it, and it's in a nutshell, when Jesus looks at all of us, 
And he says, follow me. That, that phrase, follow me, is really just an invitation to come and die. That's why, Paul, that's why Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live, I now live by faith in the Son of God. So this, this thing, when we see Jesus and we, we want to follow him, I think it, 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 the, the, it, it requires us. Following Jesus requires that we take all of our rights, all of the things that we think we own, that we have a right to, that just run the gamut, and we lay him down at his feet. And we surrender all of that to him. And then we give him the right to, or we submit to the right that he can either give those things back to us Mm -hmm. or he can take them. And then we draw our identity from him. But I think the the thing for me in my walk, whether I've been obedient or faithful or not, the, the thing that I come back to time and time again is that it's a daily, I mean, that's why Jesus says, take up your cross daily. It's a daily surrender. I wake up and I surrender again, just like I did the day before. And, and I yield to him and like, Lord, King, and like, what, what would you have for me today? Like, how can I serve you? And that, I, you know, I can't, I don't want to speak much about my obedience or faithfulness because Lord knows I, I, I do, but I, I do, I do love him and I do desire to walk with him. And I, I do believe it's a daily surrender thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, the book is titled, They Turned the World Upside Down, A Storyteller's Journey with Those Who Dared to Follow Jesus. It is a story well told. Um, and I think it's very compelling because in addition to just telling the story, you encourage us to to consider how it relates to our walk with the Lord. And I uh, really appreciated how you managed to do that and to capture my attention at the same time. Uh, the book is published by uh, Thomas Nelson, it's currently available. Thank you so much for the book and for taking time to talk with us about it here today. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Again, the book, the, They Turned the World Upside Down, beautifully written. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show Well, in the course of my 67 years of life, I've been a number of things. I've been colored, I've been Negro, I've been black, and now I'm African-American, or at least so I'm told. Well, NBC News helped us better understand what that means recently when they made the pronouncement that you cannot change your race. Now, I never thought you could, but this was apparently quite an epiphany. Uh, NBC, the leftist outlet, has declared something revolutionary. You can't change your race. Now, the article, it was written by an intern for NBC News Digital, details an online trend of people engaging in race change to another. Uh, RCTA, it's actually a thing, race change to another. Another more common term for this transition is transracialism. Astute readers are left asking, why can some people change their gender, for example, and be accepted and celebrated by the Uh, leftist overlords, and not those who want to change their race. Now, who makes these determinations? Some things can be changed, others are sacrosanct, and they cannot. Well, the obvious answer is that there's no such thing as transgenderism, transracialism, or any other form of delusion contrary to biology and, well, the facts. No one is the opposite gender of the body they were born in, just as no one is suddenly becoming or has the capacity to suddenly become another race. So I know this is an uncomfortable subject to uh, to discuss openly, but it's frustrating to me, and I would imagine maybe a couple of you as well. Well, NBC's intern concurs that 
No one can change their race, truth bomb, but gender is a different matter. So close and yet so far. Emmy Griffin uh, wrote on the subject and said the writer first brings up the point that this RCTA, this race change to another trend, is a social contagion for people who have a love for a specific culture. A social contagion. That love grows to an unhealthy level and its sufferers will cosplay as the race of their choice. Interestingly enough, one of the experts, Korean-American poet and media professor Margaret Ree, described transracialism as problematic because it is a fetishization, I can never say those words, or objectification of various cultures. Ree goes on to explain that specific cultures are fetishized for their exotic characteristics, but not really fully seen. But this only applies, let me just clarify here, this only applies to race. It has nothing whatsoever, we're being told, to do with gender. You don't fetishize a gender. You don't objectify a gender. That's a whole different matter. Well, NBC's Young Sage seems to clearly understand that this concept is a sort of mania based on fetidization and objectification, but ignores the exact same points when it comes to transgenderism. Uh, It is also a social contagion, as proved by science, that attracts people who have various reasons for wanting to not be their biological sex anymore. Now, the reasons include confusion brought about by uh, rigid gender stereotypes, we're told, a desire to fit in with their peers, escaping trauma such as, well, trauma, uh, violence, perhaps, or an advanced stage of pornography sickness called autogynephilia. Regardless of the reasons, people have uh, have been convinced that the solution to their problems is becoming the opposite sex from the one they are biologically, and they become more deeply invested as they journey to transition, i.e. transgenderism is also both a fetish and an objectification just of gender. Now, we uh, have been hearing in the last um, several weeks, uh, and by the way, this isn't a new phenomenon this is just the first time in a very long time when the voices of those who have gone through the, the process are being heard, are, are given the opportunity to be heard. This has been a phenomenon that's gone on for many, many, many years. I've, I've spoken with, met with, know some of these people who have transitioned and detransitioned. But again, they're not um, they're not welcome behind most microphones uh, or in the uh, in the media. Anyway, NBC also claims that race isn't genetic. This is because that intern wants to make the point that race is a description of a collection of physical characteristics used to characterize people. But really, it has more to do with the oppression and victimhood than DNA. Well, it's not accurate, but it's, a, I suppose, a, a good try. The victimhood hierarchy that leftists are so desperate to put forward is nonsense based not on facts, but on Marxist ideology. More importantly, race is loosely defined by categorizing people by physical appearance. What determines that? DNA or genetic material? Well, yeah. DNA dictates hair texture, eye shape, body build, and skin color. DNA also tracks genetic genetic markers denoting specific races, such as African, Asian, European, etc. It's entirely genetic. Now, the funniest aspect of NBC's Marxist argument is is that it's not nearly as strong as the biological one. Uh, This poor intern's political biases, however, prevent her from using biological facts and the very immutability of biology 
undermines the argument for transgenderism or transracialism. Well, finally, NBC claims that transracialism is pursued like a new age religion. The article describes people who are racially confused as uh, practitioners in um, manifesting. These people believe that if they have YouTube videos called subliminals playing while they are asleep, they can change their appearance. They believe it so fervently that they have convinced themselves that their features have altered somewhat. They used to call it passing in the uh, black community when I was growing up. Transgenderism is likewise a cult-like ideology that has its own sacraments like altering pronouns, cutting off anyone who doesn't affirm them, especially family, and ultimately getting sucked down the medical rabbit hole of puberty blockers, hormones, mutilation surgeries. Loyalty to this ideology is paramount. Those who dissent or detransition are heretics. So any form of violence and vitriol thrust their way is justified. However, if they stay in the fold... If they are still part of the, the cult-like ideology, then whatever they say or do is accepted. Well, NBC's hypocrisy is astonishing. The intern who wrote the article and the editors who reviewed and approved it are able to see that one trans is emphatically wrong and harmful, but not the other. Transracialism and transgenderism are both wrong. You can't change your race. You can't change your sex. Now, you can certainly change your appearance. You can alter some things about you, but you cannot change your sex. Because this is a fact, there's no such thing as trans, I mean, literally, period. People who believe otherwise have been deceived, coerced, taken advantage of because of a mental illness. They should be pitied, but also released from the delusion until the concept of trans is completely rejected. More people will continue to fall into its various traps, unless, of course, you're talking about transracialism. And that's where apparently we draw the line, at least for now. I want to thank James Blinn for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.